and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Bardard and it was Tony K911 Overture from his new End of Innocence album out on Spirit of Unicorn Music. A huge welcome, Tony. Hi, Jason. Good to be here. It's taken you so long. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's just a couple of minutes. It flew by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, um, to release your debut solo album, such an important topic as well. Which is why I did it. Yeah, so do you want to talk us? Yeah, a- well, I, I didn't really, as an instrumentalist, I didn't really have a, anything, any way for me, worthwhile before. And, uh, you know, I was working with uh, Yes up to 96, 97, and then decided to sort of retire. And uh, just, you know, was hanging in L.A. playing tennis and playing with friends and whatnot. And uh, and then, of course, 9-11 happened and, and it just inspired me to open my keyboard cases and, you know, start playing again. There were two or, two or three tracks that actually are still on the album from uh, from that day, from the day after. I started playing the actually the three orchestral orchestrally tracks the uh, 9/11 overture and a couple of others were from that day and, I, and actually I really didn't have any recording equipment I was I was actually recording on a eight track cassette which remained and of course uh, it 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 was um, you know put as soon as I got digital performer and um, started you know recording a, a, a little later even you know a couple of years later it, all that stuff was transferred from the uh, from the cassette recorder mm. you know how did you piece that all together well it, you know it it went over a period of time of course I mean it's been uh, it's been 20 years and and, and actually I, I I always visualized it, you know, I, I, I slowly started writing the music for it, not really knowing where it was going, but but really emotionally impacted from that day and having started it to, you know, to really when when I was able to actually put it to video, which was, was really when iMovie came out. And I, I really got kind of interested in editing. And, and to this day, I mean, I edit and film my wife's videos, and the video that was on uh, on YouTube for maybe three or four years was, uh, you know, from a period when I first learned how to uh, put the music to the videos of that day. So it was kind of an important uh, transition, really, in learning the editing process. And of course, it went on from there, mm. really, up until two years ago, where. I was sort of COVID happened and, and I was uh, you know stuck in my house with with the keyboards and uh, and the computer and thinking hmm, I think I should finish this and three pieces were were finished in the last two years but everything else was done over quite a long period not really knowing what it was going to be and actually fortunately I I got back together with a band for. Uh, you know the fiftieth anniversary, mm. and starting with the uh, with the cruise to the uh, cruise to the edge, which is how I ended up here you know, because the cruise went out of uh, temper in, in Florida, and I sort of discovered where I live now. But you know, I got involved back involved with a band with Steve and Alan, and of course Billy, and, uh, John, and Jeff, of course. 
and then of course with the uh, with the S management, and they really were the ones who encouraged me to actually finish. I sort of mentioned it a couple of times, and uh, yes, management uh, encouraged me to actually finish it. And some of the tracks on the album are, are more song based as well, like "Sweetest Dreams." Yeah, just "Sweetest Dreams." Actually, that was written about. Two two months after after the nine eleven event, because actually a couple of weeks after I met my wife, and uh, I asked her just really a couple of months after to write this song, which is dedicated. It was written about the uh, the first responders and the firefighters after it all happened, and you know what they were what they were going through. So she kindly wrote Sweetest Dreams and, of course, beautifully sang on it. Mm. And then I got her to, I wanted to start the album with, you know, a sort of innocent, plaintive sort of nursery rhyme song, um, which is how Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star yeah. came to mind. And she's kindly sang on that too. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, she's a uh, yeah, very talented singer-songwriter. So I got lucky, Jason. I... <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> and the artwork as well for the album um, has got Roger Dean involved there as well. Well, I sent um, I sent Roger about six, six months ago. Of course, we had uh, reconnected on the uh, Cruise to the Edge tour because he had done both of those cruises with his artwork, all the Yes artwork, uh, the original paintings. And, uh, and of course, he, he'd actually... You know, recorded my first solo venture, which was Badger, and uh, he he did the the, the the painting for for One Light Badger. So uh, mm. he sort of reconnected, and, and about six months ago, I sent him the album. I said, "I I trust you. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do, but because uh, obviously I had something in mind." What so uh, yeah. visually what it what it represented, but I I think he did a great job, and of course Mike Ends, who he works with on on other projects, did the booklet and and came up with the idea of writing short vignettes about about the sixteen tracks, and so yeah, it worked out. Roger worked out great. It's a little uh, dramatic. Course, but that's what mm. it was about. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And do you think um, completing this album has has given you the inspiration to to do more solo work? Well, that has to be seen. <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I, I can't promise you anything, but it certainly inspired me to have my studio here and, and be playing keyboards. And it it would be great if something came out. But I do have to be inspired by a, yeah. a project. It is a sort of instrumental thing. It's not writing songs, it's writing. And in fact, this album really is 16 tracks. It's an hour, 10 minutes, but really has to be listened to as one piece. I don't know whether you felt that. Absolutely. It's like um, listening to albums in the 1970s, really. This is something where, you know, you just put the, I think in this case, the CD in and, and then just, just listen as one just piece. Way back, yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it. It is true, and I was always sort of dark by the fact that um, "Dark Side of the Moon" had been written. <laughs> it was like, okay, you know, you guys did it. You did that long form album, and and of course, 
you know, there has been a few that similarly, and um, I was very inspired by uh, Vangelis too. His Blade Runner album was very inspirational to me, and I did listen to it over the years as an inspiration of what this turned out to be.
So who inspired you back in the, the early 60s to uh, play? Well, actually, a, a, a good question because, um, you know, the first the first band that I, that I ever saw at the, um, the Il Rondo Club in, in Leicester. Right. And uh, the first band I saw there was the uh, the Graham Bond organization. Wow. In, in fact, one of the uh, one of the tracks on the album is sort of a dedication to what I heard from uh, from Graham Bond. And of course, his inspiration in, to me playing Hammond. He was the first Hammond player that I I heard who had cranked up a Hammond and was playing it like a rock and roll dude. Mm. You know, the track on, uh, the, it's called 285 Fulton Street on the album. It's really a band really playing on the streets of New York. It's a it's a New York street band. Mm. Drums and, and, you know, I got the inspiration from the, the Grand Bond the band, Jack Bruce, the Kexel Smith on sax. So I have saxophone on it. And of course, Ginger Baker was in the band. So, yeah, that was my first inspiration. And of course, down the line, there was all kinds of other things, uh, other bands. Progressive movements came out of London in the, in, the late, uh, in the late 60s that were very inspirational too. I mean, the one band that really was my inspiration was the band. Yes. I absolutely adored the band band music. You know, your story in the 60s follows the path of the sounds of the era and you're on that London scene. And I think you did some recordings with Jimmy Winston, who was originally in The Small Faces. Yes, I, yeah, yeah. We we had a band, um, John John Weeder, and I forget the name of the guys in the band. But yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, Jimmy Winston was really just before I I met the guys um, Chris yeah. and and John Anderson in the, in the Shaz Club on Water Street. Uh-huh. That was the beginning of yes, meeting those guys there. I think I've read before that you were you hung out around the sort of Marquee Club and, and that sort of area. Uh, uh, yes, I mean the Marquee Club was really the you know the centre of, um, of of all music activity in Water Street and and of course next. Next door was the uh, uh, the Shaft Club, which was a little up, upstairs drinking club, and of course the the Ship Pub. It was the it was the hangout place for uh, musicians of, of of the day, and everybody you played there. Stones played there. We you know eventually after we got the band together and rehearsed a little, got a, a residency at, at the Marquee Club. I think we played there Tuesday. It was a residency. We played there too, every Tuesday in Emerson Lake. Well, what was the nice back then, Keith Emerson's band, yeah. who, uh, of course, was also very inspirational <laughs> on the Hammond. Uh, I think they played there on Wednesday. So, yeah, I mean, it was the... Uh, it was the scene. In the band, you managed to get enough money to, to get an organ? Yeah, eventually, I um, at, at the beginning of, of yes, I, I graduated from the uh, the Vox Continental to a Hammond. Yeah. <laughs> and this was the era where bands were starting to branch out more and do more extensive pieces, but prog music as we know it now didn't exist, so it was an evolution? Uh, yes, it was very very much. Um, at the end of the, the 60s, the progressive uh, music revolution really started to happen. You know, General Giant, Jethro, Emerson, of course Pink Floyd. I love to go watch Pink Floyd. They were very experimental back then. 
And, you know, at the beginning, we didn't, Yester really didn't have any uh, original music. A few songs that John and David Foster had written sort of pre-Yes in the Warriors. Yeah, so it, uh, we, were, we were kind of doing covers of, um, of other people, of course, in, in our experimental Yes way. Every little thing was a great example of that. But then you'd, you'd start branching out. Yeah, I mean, there were a few. I mean, every little thing, uh, no experience necessary. Um, Beatles, there was uh, America. There, there was quite a lot of things. Well, I mean, we just wanted to play. We didn't really have songs or original music. And that was the direction we went. And it, it kind of became the... Uh, the sort of direction of, yes, past my time with them. And do you think it was uh, Steve Howe, when he came into the band, that that really solidified the sound? Well, I think it coincided with uh, with the fact that uh, John and, and Chris were writing original, original songs. And then, of course, Steve. And we all went down to Devon and created the Yes album, really, the third Yes album. And that was really the beginning of uh, the originality of Yes. Off that album is Yours Is No Disgrace, where there's, you know, the whole band gets a credit on that one. How did that song evolve? Well, Steve and I started it, you know, with that, that whole long intro, and we, we had written that one day, and then John and Steve came in and started writing uh rest of it than John and Chris. It was a very creative situation down at the cottage. Of course, there's, there's the place that Steve still lives. Mm. Very creative. Middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you just have that freedom yeah. and, and space to experiment. Right. And, and of course, going from recording albums in a, a sort of a, a radio station control room where basically you just played the track once we went to a recording situation where experimenting became the norm and taking time to record, you know. So it definitely evolved into uh, a whole other thing around that time.
your tenure in the band by this period didn't last that much longer? Was it just uh, musical differences or that led you to leave? I think it was a bit, it was a, a few things, you know. I mean, uh, nothing really specific. I, I had started um, a band with David Foster, right. who was John's co-writer and uh, you know and with Roy Dyke and Brian Parrish and uh, and Badger was was kind of born there was certainly a, a, a musical difference in in yes you know the the fact that um, the sort of new electronic instruments of the day were really of no interest mm. to me Minimoog and Mellotron I always thought that they sounded a little out of tune uh, so, and it was something that uh, certainly John and Chris wanted to incorporate into the band. And of course, Rick was perfect because he embraced that technology. There was the One Life Badger album, and you know some strong tracks on that, like Wheel of Fortune. You know, how did uh, writing in that band and producing the the music there compare to to Yes? Well, it was it was different. Uh, it was different in the fact that. Um, you know, everyone was involved. There were two very strong writers in the band, but everyone, David, of course, was um, a very strong writer, and Brian mm. also. But everyone, you know, was, was involved. It was much more of a, uh, you know, actually it was, uh, you know, the band had only really been born maybe a couple of months, maybe a month of rehearsal in a proper rehearsal mm. studio before... I bumped into Chris and John, and they actually needed our equipment to um, to rehearse for the uh, for that gig in in London that it was recorded at. And you know the fact that we we all got together and they were so they took over, you know, our rehearsal thing. John asked me whether you know we wanted to uh, support them, and I forget the name of the uh, of the venue. Keep thinking of Crystal Palace, but that was my. That was my last gig with uh, with yes, mm. but anyway. So the point is that the, the band was very young. Uh, we'd only been together for um, two or three months when that was recorded. It was am- amazing. It was as together as it was. Of course, John helped to uh, produce it. Where were you based with Badger? Did you go over to the states then? No, we were we were in London, and right. um, and the, for one reason or another, uh, I don't really remember. The band changed, and uh, Jackie Lomax and uh, Kim Gardner came into the band. It was still called Badger, and we got an offer. We joined another record company. I think really that was how it turned out, and they wanted a change or or something and we ended up in um recording in uh, in New Orleans right that was the second but of course it it really changed the direction of the music of the band and it was it was not to be <laughs> those badger albums are they're almost like two different bands out they're quite different sounds yes i mean completely and 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 of course it was not completely totally to my liking and uh, yeah but it was what it was, and uh, we had the opportunity to come to America and, and record in New Orleans, and uh, uh, that was something that I, I wanted to do. And we had a you know a great time. We actually recorded there for maybe over six months, and you know lived on Bourbon Street and experienced that whole thing. Which musically, I'm not sure that it was 
exactly you know what I had in mind for the band, but it was certainly a musical situation that I really enjoyed being in a environment that I mm. Dr. John and all those guys playing uh, in clubs on Bourbon Street. And it was pretty cool.
And then after Badger, you got the call to uh, play live with David Bowie on his uh, Station to Station tour. How did that happen? Well, I came, we, you know, we came back, we finished recording in New Orleans and, uh, and, and I went back to, uh, to London. The band sort of fizzled out. The album uh, really didn't do anything. And, uh, but I sort of made up my mind that uh, America was where I wanted to be. And so I sold everything, packed up, and got on a plane and ended up in Los Angeles. A couple of months, maybe maybe four or five months, I was celebrating my birthday at the Rainbow on, on the Sunset Strip, bumped into uh, David's tour manager, and he said, can you be on a plane tomorrow? Wow. And that was that. David Bowie for a couple of years. <laughs> What was the um, the time span in terms of getting that call and playing the first show? Oh, the next day! Wow! <laughs> oh yeah, it was it was one of those uh, wild sort of um, uh, because actually I I think it was almost the first time I'd been to uh, to the Rainbow and my my friend really my only friend you know in my sort of recuperation period in <laughs> in Los Angeles took me there for my birthday. And basically, it was, can you be on a plane tomorrow? And the next day, I found myself in uh, in Ocho Rios in Jamaica, re- rehearsing at uh, King's Richard's house. Wow. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty wild. But a, a great experience, of course. And, you know, David's band was uh, amazing. Yeah. He was amazing. They were amazing. All New York session guys. You know, fantastic musicians, and just to have the the opportunity, you know, this this white guy from from yes was uh, these New York guys was pretty amazing and quite um, big shoes to fill with in the studio. David had recorded those parts with Rick Waitman, and then obviously there's this Mike Garson there, who's an incredible player. So yeah. some of those parts are, are quite complex. You know, even when you look at Life on Mars, for example, it, it's not something that you would just jam along to. Uh, yes, it was. Um, it was. It was quite challenging. But you know, fortunately, I, w- I was playing Hammond and piano, and and I had all the guidance from uh, from David's band leader, Carlos Alomar who was just the most patient, uh, incredible guy. And he was really sort of my, uh, at the beginning, my mentor for what I had to learn and what uh, what I had to do. But they were such a great band that, you know, how could you not? You know, and actually in a lot of ways, they were, they were a jam band, you know, hmm. and even though had to, you know, follow the, uh, follow the music, yeah. it was pretty easy. Sunken dream to the seat with the clearest view. 
you to not carrying on with David and then and then linking up with Michael DeBar and, and Detective? Well, of course, uh, you know, the tour ended. David, as David was, um, you know, went on to other things. He moved to Berlin with Iggy, where we sort of, we played there at the end of the European tour and he was very caught up and loved the uh, creativeness of uh, Berlin. And so he went on to do his thing and, you know, that was the end of it. And I was sort of fried by that time and, um, and just sort of got into playing tennis, sort of retiring for a little while until I met Michael. And he persuaded me to, uh, not exactly to join Detective, but to, you know, to play with them. So then there was Detective and then, then I bumped into uh, Tommy from Badfinger and the whole Badfinger thing started at the end of the 70s. And, you know, ended up in, in Miami recording what was to be the last Badfinger album. Consequently, bumped into Chris, who was on the drama tour with, with uh, Jeff and Trevor Horn. Went to the, the show in Miami. and We were recording in Miami. He had, uh, well, he had rented a house for his uh, family on Biscayne. Oh, it just happened that uh, I was living next door. Right. So coincidence is uh, happening. And uh, Chris and I got to uh, talking and he said that he was thinking about putting another band together and had found a guitar player. And, you know, when I got back to L.A., I should. Uh, and of course, that you know, that was Trevor. Ah, yes. So how, how long were you in Badfinger then? Well, a couple of years we we toured. We um, we made the, the album "Say No More," and uh, which was a really really fun album, and we had a great time in uh, in Miami, and it was fun. And then you know, meeting Chris, and then about a year later, you know, Chris wanted to put the band together, and. Mm. So Trevor and I got on a plane and went to uh, went to London, started rehearsing. But there was already a, a Badfinger tour in in the works, and sort of at the end of nine hundred one two five, I went over to LA to start the Badfinger tour hmm. and got the news that Tommy had died. Oh, yeah. Tragic, tragic. Yeah, the Badfinger thing was uh, very sad.
when you were collaborating with Chris and Trevor originally, was that not known as Yes? No, that was um, that was uh, Cinema. We were actually called Cinema before right. we got sort of back together with uh, Atlantic Records. And uh, of course, you know, we'd uh, rehearsed for about nine, ten months and then went to the studio, recorded the album. Of course, John arrived from Paris and came to the studio, wanted to be in the band and became Yes again. Huge success with owner of a lonely heart when you heard that song did you realize what a hit it was well um you know i had sort of left the band at that point i had my uh disagreements and uh, especially with travel horn at the end of recording 9125 and uh, and I, I went back to la and then in fact started a uh, a t-shirt company oh. um, i used to sell uh, t-shirts at swap meets and one day I was sitting there selling T-shirts and uh, suddenly Unabilinely Hard came on and, and I thought, I recognize that. And a couple of weeks later, Trevor phoned and said, we're going on the road. So <laughs> that was the end of the T-shirt business.
was interesting that um, by the, the mid-90s, you decided to take a lower-key role in music. Um, Billy Sherwood was starting to get involved in it around that period, but it was actually collaborating with Billy that got you involved with Circa? Oh, well, you know, it, it was around... Um, I was still sort of uh, messing around doing the End of Innocence thing, you know, just really hanging at the studio. I you know, set up a studio and started recording more seriously. I got Digital Performer. And I think it was around 2006, I got a, um, a call from Billy and started doing some session work for him. And um, we started talking about putting a band together and there it was. Circa happened. Again, strong material like uh, Cut the Ties from uh, the debut Circa album. How did you... Um write material in that period did the band jam or did someone particularly lead well you know billy's the primary um songwriter yeah but we in in those early albums we collaborated on uh you know musical things and creating the music and him writing the lyrics and uh, but yeah basically it was a it was a collaboration that stretched out into, of course, Alan was involved. Alan White was involved with the band at that time and Jimmy Hahn. Of course, we came up with that uh, Yes medley that uh, was 40 minutes long. <laughs> that was recorded round about the first album, I think.
to go even more up to date? Was it therefore a more easier or natural process to to guest with the current lineup of Yes um, in the uh, the Cruise to the Edge shows? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, the fact was Billy had um, Billy had joined the band. He'd uh, you know successfully uh, integrated into the band, uh, and then of course you know we lost Chris, and uh, mm. it became another thing, and then. Uh, my friend Jay, who is also on uh, End of Innocence, he did the, the drums on on the track uh, Flight Eleven. Yeah, and I'd known Jay. In fact, Jay was in Badfinger for a brief moment, but I'd, I'd known Jay since he was seventeen years old. He first arrived in LA. He was sort of put in place to help Alan when Alan hurt his back. Went through that, and you know, I was invited to do the um, Cruise to the Edge. And then, of course, uh, the 50th anniversary happened, and happily they uh, invited me to uh, to be on the tour. So you know, it all came in a bit of a full circle, really. Especially with Bill. Thankfully, uh, you know, it was it was great that Billy and, and Jay. But actually, you know, getting to know Steve after all all those years, it had been 40 years since mm. I'd seen him, you know, was uh, was really a very nice thing to happen. Yeah, and a, a real celebration of those times. You know, it was the after Cruise to the Edge, it was the 50th anniversary tour, and you got to play those songs from the Yes album like Starship Trooper again. Uh, yeah. It must have been All of those a huge songs, response yeah. and, and just great fun to do. It was. It was. Uh, I, of course, I hadn't really been in front of an, um, uh, a big audience or or a Yes audience in, in a long time, and it was a very, uh, you know, the band was very happy. They were all great friends and just having a good time and uh, enjoying the band with uh, John, of course, John uh, Davison at the helm. And Alan was doing a lot better. You know, the band was just playing really, really well. And it was just a very happy, uh, happy time that coincided with the, uh, with the 50th anniversary, which was quite a, quite a milestone, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all of that. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Tony. It's been such a pleasure talking to you here Obviously, to mention End of Innocence, and um, I mean, hopefully the, the muse will strike you and you will continue to to craft and, and play on some new music as well as you've done with, with your new album. I think it, it would be a great thing. I'm not sure what it, what it would be, but I'm certainly inspired by, you know, what, is, what has transpired with uh, End of Innocence, and I will let you know oh. when it happens. Brilliant. I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to that. Thank you, Thank you again, Tony, and it's been a real pleasure. My pleasure, Jason. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.